Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, we will speak about software engineering, algorithms, and all sorts of other complicated, complex things that help you to understand your audience and to achieve your objectives. And we'll do that with one of the smartest young people in Australia. But before we come to the interview for today, we start, as we do each week, with the definition of content communication as it relates to government and the public sector. So content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So, to my guest today, it's Renee Noble, who is a software engineer at Data61, but she's also responsible for the algorithm that drives Ribbit, which is the job matching service that we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks uh, that is part of Data61 and which is also part of um, the CSIRO. So my guest today is Renee Noble, who is a software engineer at Data61, but she's also been a young researcher intern at NICTA. She's worked as a tutor at the University of Sydney, and she's also been an engineering intern at Amcor. But at the moment, her job is to really make the algorithm work at Ribbit. And what I want to talk to her today about is really about science and engineering and how, in fact, people can use data to better inform their content in order to achieve those business objectives. So Renee joins me now. Renee, thanks for joining me in Transition. Oh, pleasure to be here. So, Renee, just take me back to, let's go back a little while, I suppose, to maybe when you first started to get interested in science and maths all those years ago back at Coffs Harbour High School on the northern New South Wales coast here in Australia. Yep. Well, I've always been a bit of a nerd. Uh, I loved everything. The first time I picked up uh, chemistry, I fell in love with it. I wanted to have periodic tables all over my walls. (laughs) I loved maths. Uh, I guess I never quite knew what it was useful for um, until I I decided to enrol in Sydney Uni um, because I kind of just flipped through the book of courses you could do at universities and went, well, I like maths, I like physics and chemistry, and I actually settled on combined chemical engineering and science degrees and doing a chemistry major. I had no idea what computer science was when I got to uni. Um, Luckily, I got to uni, um, I met a few people, and they you know, told me what programming was all about, you know, introduced me to programming for the very first time. And then I tacked that onto my degree. And now, you know, seven years later, I'm sitting here, I'm working at the CSIRO Data61 as a computer scientist, uh, writing algorithms that affect people's lives every day. Yeah, it's a great field to be in. Um, and I guess the, the you can touch so many people's lives. And I guess I never quite known what you could do with maths. I'd always been in love with maths. And um, I guess I hadn't realized that you could, you know, use all that maths knowledge when you can program, you can do it basically maths on steroids, get all the maths and all the algorithms you love out to um, everybody and make a real impact. It's certainly a a good time to be a nerd though, isn't it? 
But it, but it, interestingly, it's looking at your background. You're not just interested in in maths. You're also, you know, when you were at Sydney University studying, you were involved in the debating team, the choir, the netball team, the touch football team. How have you balanced, you know, those sides of your life? Uh, I guess I like to be busy. I get bored easily. At the moment, you know, I'm working full-time at uh, Data 61, but on, you know, the weekends um, I run a national program called the Girls Programming Network where we teach girls to code free by girls for girls. I also teach a swing dancing class every Tuesday, so it's never, you know, a dull moment. It's I like to keep busy. Um, and I love, I guess I just want to tell everybody about all the things I love and make the most impact uh, that I can. So in terms of having that impact and using data at the moment, how, what are some of the, the simple ways that you describe what you do to the people who are at the swing dancing course? Uh, I guess I tell people I'm using people's data to work out uh, what kind of people they are and what um, they want to get out of using something like Ribbit and possibly that trying to get value out of them or give them value that they didn't realise they wanted. Um, so I guess what I tell people is I'm making matches based on, you know, the data that I can see of them and the data I can see for the whole community um, to make the best good that I can. What's, what's best practice to you in terms of, of data analysis? And the reason I ask that is because I think increasingly in terms of uh, – creating content for, for government and public sector organisations, we have to become much better at using the data so we can understand what are the stories that people are interested in, what time of the day do they like to see them, what are the formats that they like, what are the channels that they like. So all that information is there available to us. But what is best practice and how can people m take best advantage of the oceans of data that are out there that can inform those very important decisions that they need to make? Yes, there's a huge amount of data and we're collecting more data by the second. Um, and it's, yeah, really deciding how to use that data and making sure your assumptions are valid when you start out with something. I guess when we use data, we have to make sure we're completing a cycle to make sure we do something with, we take the data, we do something with it. Um, we make some prediction or we just make a decision based on it. And then we need to check that that decision actually worked out to make an improvement because we could otherwise, you know, if we're deciding what content to show somebody or, um, you know, what, you know, jobs to assign them on Rivet, if we just, you know, make a guess and we don't ever go back and ask the question, well, is that better than randomly assigning someone an article to read or randomly assigning some jobs that they might be interested in viewing? If we don't check with them um, by collecting data in some way to complete a validation process, then it's all for nothing. Okay, so we start with the assumption. So let's go through an example perhaps of, of creating content uh, to engage with students that are going to open up opportunities for them um, within, let's talk about the Ribbit Network because that's something that you are obviously engaged with on a daily basis. So, so what are some of those assumptions that you need to start with? Well, you need to think about what, how much time they have, what are students interested in actually reading, are they, is it a time of the year where they want to be working on their resume or is it a time of the year that they're stuck into their studying um, and that they're not actually going to have much time to read this at all. We need to think about um, are engineering students interested in reading an article on business or, you know, maybe business students aren't interested in reading uh, articles on, you know, human interest. So we need to think about the kinds of people who are going to be reading it 
and then um, think about, so what's going to drive our decisions on which content to send to which people? Okay, so context is that first point that you raise, and I think that's fundamentally important um, as a driver because people are influenced at different times of the year, as you say, you know, if it's summer holidays, um, you know, you're not going to be creating content that's, you know, relevant to, you know, wintertime, for example. So understanding that context um, up front, but then understanding those interests. But it would seem to me that there are so many things that could go into just about any sort of consideration. So how do you go about narrowing down and understanding you know, those assumptions and the, the assumptions that are going to have the most impact on the decisions that you're making? So a lot of the time we actually leave it up to the computers. There's so many bits of information and we can't possibly know everybody's motives or understand what every individual wants. So we can, you know, make assumptions on a large basis that we don't want to, you know, send out content you know, during the summer holidays about internships because people are on holidays um, and traveling. So we can start with large assumptions like that, but on an individual basis, we need to kind of look more in depth at each individual person, which you can't do as a human. So we you know, let algorithms um, figure out these patterns. And a lot of the time, there's so much more information hidden beneath the surface that we couldn't possibly figure out on our, by ourselves. Um, so we let uh, you know, algorithms pick up unstructured data. So we use things like freeform text and use a bunch of algorithms that can turn that text into numbers, which we can use to compare between how much someone might like a particular article or a particular job. We can see the similarities in how they write and how that might increase their likelihood of enjoying some article. Now, most people who are working in communications don't have the, the mathematics skills that you're, you're talking about. And obviously, they may be able to access them within their own um, ICT areas or there are other people who may be working in data that they can help to, to work with them. But what's some best or simple best practice that people could possibly use or some of the services that um, are now freely available? I, you know, I understand that Google has basic AI services that you can access. Obviously, Watson from IBM, there are basic free services that can be used. Are they, are they some of the tools that can be used to help you to, to make some of these decisions? Uh, definitely. Things like Google Analytics can track how many people are visiting your site and things like this. And I think, yeah, collecting that end-of-the-line data is really the key point. So whether it's Google, using Google Analytics or you're calling up your customers or you know, taking a survey, just getting that statistical information, doing basic things like on average a lot more people listen to this or engage with this content um, it, on average, um, medians, or seeing how you know one demographic might be more greatly affected than another, just basic statistics you could do in Excel is something that would be really helpful for um, making you more aware of how they engaged with it and making your decisions for next time um, you're going to send something out to them. Is it important to measure everything? I don't think so. I think you need to target very specifically what you want to get out of it. So you should be looking at who your audience is, what is your goal, and then like what is a metric that is going to show you what if they've really engaged with it or if that was really the right decision to send it out to them. So I would choose a few t targeted metrics 
and then collect data around that. You don't need to collect everything because that's just a pile of numbers that you have to do something with. And most of them are going to end up going to waste. So I would start with a key metric and start from the very beginning knowing what data you want to collect and how it's going to prove the point that you have been successful in measuring their engagement. Yeah, because I suppose it goes to that point about a pattern, doesn't it? That you, you're going to see a pattern, but to have a pattern, you need to collect data over time. Definitely, yes. You, and you want to be collecting the same data from the very start. So that's why I would say if you're going to have any sort of strategy around engaging people, you need to have that metric from the start and that strategy for collecting data and for processing it from the very beginning. Mm. How time intensive is that? Do, you know, obviously, that's a, maybe a question, how long is a piece of string? But um, you know, in, in your experience, you know, how much time and attention should people be giving to you know, establishing these data sets and interrogating the, da- the data sets that they're collecting? I think it's, you can do a lot with a little information um, and get you know, a lot of the way down the line. But yeah, it's highly contextual. Uh, but even yeah, just doing a survey or you know watching what someone's clicked on, maybe you can get a lot of feedback using some simple tools to see how they've engaged. And even if we've just like given someone an article and they've clicked on it, that's already an indicator that they've engaged with mm. it. And that's a very good beginning, I think. How do you get people engaged in doing surveys? Because it would seem that you know you turn it around three times, there's somebody else who's got another survey that they're urging you to fill in because obviously they're looking for, for data. What are some of the techniques that you use to encourage people to take a survey? I would say that it's really focusing on how we can improve the quality of the product we're delivering to someone uh, doing a survey. So if they can see a benefit towards themselves for doing a survey, that's a good start, I think. So you need to describe the benefits. What about offering them some sort of incentive or bribe to, uh, to be involved as well? I've definitely seen that work in you know, organisations I've been involved with in the past. You know, the allure of a free iPad will go a long way. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, we certainly know that because we've re- we, you know, we do our own surveys and we often, well, actually always put an incentive in place because we find that that lifts the numbers um, markedly. Um, do you think it in any way compromises the data that you're getting if you do have an incentive in place? Uh, it's hard to say, possibly, but I think... People, you know, if it's a simple enough survey um, to fill out and, you know, they can engage with it, you know, multiple choice questions or something easily, then, you know, they'll give it a good go, I think, to fill that out um, appropriately. Uh, Free form text would be harder to collect because it takes a lot more time and effort. But hopefully you get at least some good data and you can filter manually by the quality of the responses you get. Because we have to remember, even when we're using computers, humans are always in the loop because this is just a system designed to help out humans. So, And we have to be able to process that human information, which is hard for computers to do still. So in terms of, of survey and, and survey de- design, how much expertise do you feel is needed um, to be able to put together an effective survey. Um, the tools themselves, you know, your campaign monitors, uh, survey monkeys, you know, they're, they're very intuitive and they're, they're very good for you and very easy for you to be able to set up very, very quickly. But how much expertise do you think is needed to, to make sure that the, the questions that you're asking are getting you the information that you need? I think it can be hard and it definitely takes a lot of practice. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in this by any 
means I've mostly collect data by watching people's engagement with a website by clicks and things like that. Uh, but I think designing, yeah, well-designed questions are an essential part of designing a good survey and even giving examples or, you know, constraining it to multiple choice or choosing from a list of options uh, would help if you were trying to collect data that you can, you know, aggregate easily to make uh, larger scale decisions. Mm. And in terms of the size and numbers of questions, what's your view on how, how big or how small um, surveys should be or how quickly they, they're able to be uh, filled out? As a user of surveys, an individual, I can speak on that. I often go, oh, five-minute survey, that's too long. Um, I, maybe I'll think about doing it later. So if it's something that, you know, you can see on a single page um, and you can get through quickly, then that's something I do personally. And I think that would be m very common amongst people my generation at, at least and probably all people. Yeah, that right. you, If you don't know what you're going to get back from it, then you're not invested in it very much. And how do you describe those benefits to people? Like, how is it that you, you can introduce this notion of this is valuable to you? Like, is it a, 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 a yeah, do, do, you, do you, like, write an article about why it's important? Or how is it that you sort of try to describe the value of, of filling out that survey? I guess on a platform like Ribbit, it's a lot harder when, you know, the people you're talking to aren't people you know personally, aren't necessarily warm contacts. So hopefully people are seeing the value of the platform. And if you make it a more personal sounding message, I would say it would be more effective rather than making it sound, you know, very robotic, very like everybody receives this message and yeah. this is just part of the drill. Okay. And how often? Are you going out and, and surveying or how often do you think people should go out and, and survey their audience? That is very dependent on the kind of data you're collecting and the kind of um, time span that whatever you are acting on, it takes place over. So if it's a longer term study of people's interaction with the site, then you would probably want to do it less frequently. But if it's you want to see how many people are using something on a daily basis, then more regularly would be appropriate. Okay, so this is your responsibility, obviously, is to, is to do the, you know, the data analysis um, for, for um, the Ribbit team. But can you describe how do you fit into the, the general working of the actual program? Where do you sit and, and how do you sort of, you know, integrate what you're doing into the broader business line and business activity of that actual program there at Data61? Yes. So the um, being able to predict good jobs for students or good students for jobs is a key part of Rivet um, that will set us apart from other jobs platforms, we believe. Uh, so we put a lot of effort into um, making sure that it's integrated well into the platform um, so we can show people the full value of the thing that we're creating. So I guess I work a lot with the rest of the team on how it's going to appear on the front end of the website and how we need to work around collecting the right data so we can make the correct predictions. And I also focus a lot on being able to collect the right data so we can actually validate this experiment to see that we're actually improving the quality of jobs that we're giving students and students we're passing on to jobs. 
by seeing if they're actually engaging with these new students more than they would engage with a simpler algorithm or more than they would engage with students that we assign to them at random. Yeah, okay. And so then how how important is, is design then um, as it relates to data collection and, and impact? I would say design is the largest part of my job. Um, whether it's designing how all the parts of the algorithm are going to work together and how we might aggregate different results from different parts of the algorithm into one big, very good number rather than lots of different smaller, less effective numbers, or how we might you know, collect that data from the users. And I, there's a lot of it to do with, we could use, if we had so much more data, we could do a lot more with it, but we have to have a trade-off of how much data we can reasonably ask a student to put in and how much um, we can get out of it. So you, we could ask them to put in a huge amount of data and we could get a huge amount of value from that possibly to give them a really good job prediction. Or we could you know, ask them to put in a smaller amount of data and not get as valuable a job prediction, but they're more likely to engage with the platform because they haven't had to put in that huge overhead of effort. So it's really a trade-off between those two points. Okay, but ultimately it's, it's delivering a great experience for the user. Exactly. Yes, we want to make sure that from you know signing up on the platform to getting um, some job recommendations to you know applying for that job, it all has to be integrated well, and we want to make sure that none of you know one part doesn't over influence the other. So making sure we have a streamlined um, experience where you have to basically do nothing and you get some jobs out of the end we need to make sure we balance that we've asked for just enough information to give them great recommendations. Um, and also, I guess if you put more in, you get more out is part of our platform. So getting students to realise this is a great opportunity for them to make sure they, they can put in enough information so they can get out the value that they're seeking. What's the most difficult part of your job? The most difficult part of my job, I would say, is collecting that data. So we've talked about surveys a lot, and it's hard to get people to give you the data to make sure that it is working in the end. Because we not only want to predict what job a student might click on or what, uh, or what they might apply for, we want to see if they not only got the job but had a really good experience at the job. Because if we can predict where a student and a job might both have a great experience together, that's the exact kind of predictions we want to be making. But without being able to collect that data easily on how great an experience they had when they you know, arranged an internship, it's hard to make you know, predictions to create more of those experiences. But so that, working that, with limited data is my hard point. Yeah, but that would seem to be a very difficult thing to do because each of their experiences is going to be impacted by all sorts of different things. It could be as simple as, you know, the transport is very difficult to get to the job all the way through to, you know, the, the actual business had a very poor culture and didn't understand. So how, how does that impact sort of your prediction um, yes, algorithms? Definitely. That, there's so many factors that it would affect something like that. And at the moment, we don't get that far down the line. And we're just seeing what students are engaging with because if we can at least get them looking at more jobs or applying for more jobs, that's a great starting point. And then in the future, when we have a lot more students getting those jobs, we can start figuring out who's having the best experiences, why the jobs appreciated that intern, why the intern appreciated that job experience, and then work on improving the algorithm from there. So 
are you embedded in the team there? Where, where do you live in terms of the organisation of, of Ribbit at Data61? How are you integrated into the team and, and how do you work with the other team members so they can get best value out of your expertise? So I am part of Data61 as a broader you know, uh, company, um, but I basically I'm on loan um, for as long as need be to Ribbit and I work just as any other team member would. Um, I have a few interns that I supervise within the team, um, teaching them machine learning and artificial intelligence, and they're helping to get the algorithm up and running. I attend all the meetings to make sure that the platform as a whole is going to incorporate properly the value that I'm trying to provide and using the results that I create to you know, best give them to the students in a way that they can take advantage of them. So whether that's um, talking about how the user interface works and looks, um, how we need to put things in the database so they can be stored. It's all connected. Um, so I'm constantly talking to uh, people designing the interface or people uh, designing the database uh, and everyone up to the management who decides what the disruption of the platform is because really this is a huge value um, add for Ribbit because it's really what's going to set us apart from everybody else. Yeah, it, that, obviously, yeah, that, that um, intuitive sense and the value, I suppose, that it ultimately creates. And if you're making better decisions based on the, you know, the effectiveness of the algorithm, obviously that creates, you know, the value that the, you know, the user is looking for. Definitely. So we want to make sure that value is apparent up front. So we're showing them, hey, you've bothered to put in this effort to sign up for this platform. Well, here you go. Here's some value straight away. Yeah. And they can see the value of coming back to Revit, keeping on giving us more of um, the information we need to help them get to a better place in their career. Now, this integration of data analysts into all sorts of you know, different roles, be it a, a job-seeking platform like Ribbit or into a, a government communications area where you're actually bringing the data in, analysis, analysts in for the first time, is, it's new. Um, and it's, a, it's really a new area for particularly government communications people to start to uh, leverage so as that they can make better decisions about, you know, content types, topics, channels, etc. What What is your advice to a to an organisation who is thinking that, yes, okay, I can see the value that we're going to be able to, you know, create better and content and distribute better content because we're going to know um, more as a result of, of data analysis. But what's the advice that you might have for those teams in how they could best prepare to bring somebody in? What, what do you need to do your job very, very well? I think you really need a team that's going to listen to you and say, yes, I can get you that data if they want to see the results. Because working with the team, if you don't have access to the right data, makes it very difficult. Uh, they say garbage in, garbage out. So if you can't get the data you need to make a good uh, prediction of what you want to do, then you're not going to be able to provide the value that they're seeking. So having a team on board who is willing to listen to you, provide you with the things you need, and also willing to give you a bit of time. Because all of this, if they call it data science for a reason, everything's an experiment. And you need to design the experiment. You need to write up the code to perform the experiment. And then you need to see if the experiment actually worked. That involves validating, which is often more data involved. So having a team that's willing to work with that process uh, will allow you to get the full amount you can out of a data scientist. Okay, so patience is important. 
definitely important. <laughs> I know it's taken me a bit of time to get things up and running and to work out what data you need to make sure everything is working along the way. But I'm glad I've had a team that's been willing to support that and we're going to deliver something hopefully very valuable soon. Okay, so how, and again, this, these questions are probably, you know, how long is a piece of string, but how patient should people be? How, how long could it, could it possibly be for us, you know, to, to be able to start to derive value? Well, I think you've got to start with a good minimum viable product. Um, so looking at what is the least amount we can do to improve how we're deciding how we deliver content to somebody. And sometimes it's as simple as just collecting some data around who's already viewing it, some simple demographic information, and you can start from there. But if you want a much larger scale, uh, more in-depth approach to something, then you're going to have to you know, wait a bit longer. Okay. Now, just a final question. I'm interested in, obviously, the focus that we've been doing here is, or, or looking at so far is really that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the data that's coming out of the platforms and you're looking at the activity-based data, then you're looking at that qualitative data that you're receiving when you're doing your surveys. But how do you integrate you know, the, the broader, the, the larger open data sets. Obviously, again, using Ribbit as an example, there's all sorts of data around students. There's all sorts of data around the numbers of students and their particular expertise. How do you integrate open data uh, into the algorithms that you're building? Or do you, in fact, um, integrate those open data sources? Uh, for a start, like if you're looking for the minimum viable product, I would say you avoid that and you stick with the information you have tangible on hand. But we're definitely looking at how we can use more information that's around to design better algorithms. So whether you might think initially trying to assign a job to a student, you would look at all the jobs and figure out what's best for them. But another way we could go even within the platform, there's open data that you wouldn't think was necessarily useful. So you could look at well, I know that 50 other students have applied for this job already and that you're not quite as qualified for the job, so maybe I shouldn't recommend it as highly for you because it would be a waste of your time, possibly. So there's data already inside your platform that's already open um, that you have on access. But then further, you can go and look at data that's existing around the rest of the world, and you could, for instance, we are working on trying to work out what students might write and how that would relate to what a job would write about itself, a description and using techniques to compare those to work out what jobs are best for which students. And if we have access to more uh, language um, and more pieces of text, then we could further develop the model of language around job applications and job descriptions and student descriptions that would allow us to better create an atmosphere where we know more about how people write about jobs, which would allow us to make better predictions. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. Just a final question. How do you write an algorithm or how do you produce an algorithm? Okay. So there's, I guess there's a few different ways. So there's some tools that would make it easier to have some kind of built-in artificial intelligence or something like that. But what I spend my day doing is writing code. So I write in Python, uh, a scripting language mostly, and there's a lot of libraries out there that feature a lot of existing algorithms, and a lot of it is about taking the data you have, manipulating it, getting it in a state where you have all the pieces of information on hand, 
and either writing your own number cruncher to figure out what is the best way to sum something up or aggregate some data to make a prediction or using an existing piece of code that you can get from a free library to uh, utilize that to make the prediction for you. And then taking those predictions, possibly using multiple different predictions and adding them together in a way that is relevant to your context and then saying, this is what my algorithm does. It's a composite of different bits of uh, information and different um, number crunching parts that produces a result that is relevant to uh, the value I'm trying to create. Okay, very good. So uh, crossing that line from, you know, that technical discussion and, you know, this it's quite technical maths-based, science-based work and then sort of that science-based communication, then turning it into, you know, a form, a language form that people can understand. You're obviously very good at that. Um, but is it a challenge for people to be able to communicate effectively around what they're doing? Uh, definitely. So, yeah, there is a lot of technical stuff and being able to break it down so others can understand the broad strokes of what you're trying to do is a really important part, I would say, of data science and working in a team because you need to be able to communicate what you're trying to do, what your experiment's about and why you need to do it to be able to tell others how you need to do it, what information and support they need to provide, how you need to collect the data, if they need to do a survey or if you need to add something else to the you know, platform you're using in order to be able to complete the experiment. Because it is you know, very experimental and if we can't communicate why we're doing it to others, then why would they give us their trust and their time and their value yeah. to be able to support it? Because I can see very clearly, as you've described, as we've had this conversation today, there's no question in my mind that you know, every um, communication area uh, is going to have to have uh, a data analyst who is doing this um, you know, this agile approach of testing and learning, of, of, you know, creating the hypothesis, working with the team, then setting up the experiments, running the experiments, getting the data, and because that is going to help us to get more accurate in the content types, the content channels, the timings, etc., that we need. Because as, you know, there's massive competition for people's time and attention, and unless you're relevant... Um, you're just not going to be considered. And the only way I think you can be relevant is to go through these testing cycles to just get better and better and better as you're doing there uh, at Ribbit. So it's fascinating time, isn't it? Sort of bringing these two worlds together that um, have long often not been, um, you know, talking to each other. Definitely. People have kept, you know, arts and communication far away from maths and science. But, yeah, it's the time to marry them up to give everybody what they want. Yeah, indeed. Well, Renee, thank you very much I'm, because I'm not a maths person. There's nothing you – know, I'm nothing further um, from my mind. But we have our own data analyst here at Content Group and I'm just in, forever fascinated about the, the experiments and, and it just – we can see it already in, in how it's improving – our decision-making because we're seeing things, we're seeing those patterns and being able to react to it. And, you know, we're going from the days of relying on the old tummy compass and now we're getting the hard data, which is helping us to make better decisions, which ultimately is getting us better results for the for the government uh, organisations that we're working for. So it's an exciting time. Very early days, I've got to say, but um, yeah, it's, uh, and I think everyone's going to be the same. So we all have to take this challenge um, of, of, of improving and, and integrating uh, the data analysis in, into our work. So thank you very much for, for your time today and, and good luck with everything at Data61. 
Oh, thanks for having me. And to you, the audience, thank you very, uh, very much for joining me once again. That was a fascinating uh, chat. I think, Renee, what a great communicator. What a um, someone who's done wonderful things um, on the Ribbit platform there, but really the way she was able to explain. And I think most of you listening would be thinking, yeah, we need a Renee Noble on our team, don't we? We, all, we need those people to really add that value because we can't rely on the tummy compass anymore. We've really got to take on the challenge of data. We can't ignore it and we have to uh, take it on. So there you go. All right. So thanks very much for tuning in once again this week, um, for giving up a little bit of your, your week, which I very much appreciate. And I'll be back at the same time next week. So once again, it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.